This is the Education Gadfly Show. Shortages of what type of non-teaching staff top the list? I was going to go with soccer coaches. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas P. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, April Wells. April, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, it's great to have you. April is the gifted coordinator in the Illinois School District U46, which we will talk about where that is. She's also the author of Achieving Equity in Gifted Programming, Dismantling Barriers and Tapping Potential. Also joining us as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Well, April, I'm so excited that you're joining us. I had the chance to hear April talk about the topic we're going to be discussing today, which is really talent development in gifted education. Last week at a wonderful first meeting of a working group that Fordham is hosting, it's called the Working Group on Advanced Education. We're going to be saying more about that publicly in coming weeks, about what the working group's up to and what we're trying to to figure out. Uh, An amazing group of practitioners and academics, policy types coming together to try to help give school districts advice on how to run really high quality and equitable gifted education program. So April, we are excited to have you with us today. Tell our listeners really quickly, School District U46, for those of you that just may not know where that is, that's what, that is basically northwest of Chicago? Correct. We are just outside of Chicago, um, northwest of the city. We are actually the second largest public school system in Illinois. Yeah. Okay. And my understanding is, is pretty diverse, right? Economically, racially, would you say? Yes, we are a very diverse district, and that actually provides our opportunity to embrace those intersectionalities and beauties that come with the diversities of our families and students. All right. Very good. All right. Well, let's talk all about how to run great gifted programs, especially what what you have called talent development programs, in Ed Reform Update. Okay, April. Well, as you know, those of us here at Fordham, we care a lot about any effort to try to make sure that advanced students get the challenge they need to live up to their full potential, and especially poor kids and kids of color who present in schools as having a lot of academic potential. You know, we think a lot of the solutions to the problems we wrestle with, whether it's exam schools and high schools or selective colleges once kids are older, you know, that if we could start earlier and make sure that we identify kids showing great promise and help keep them on that track, give them the challenge they need, that, you know, that solves a lot of, maybe not every issue, but that solves a lot of the issues. And of course, it's good for them. It's good for their families. It's good for our country, our competitiveness. And one of the things we talked about last week with the working group was how to best identify students, especially young students, who might be good bets for a gifted program. We talked about the importance of having universal screening, the importance of using local norms, the importance of you know using whatever standardized test maybe the district or the state is already using. But something that came up that I didn't really know much about were these talent development programs that were important both in helping kids uh, learn, but also in identifying kids that maybe wouldn't be identified through those tests. So Tell us more. What is talent development and what does that look like in U46? Great question. So talent development is an opportunity to provide access to rigorous experiences for students prior to an identification process. So in U46, we believe that 
First of all, like many others, that giftedness occurs in all backgrounds, all populations, and to the degree which we have services and experiences to recognize that, we see those populations in all of our programs. Like many other states and systems, we had an issue with underrepresentation, namely those students who either um, identify as Black, Latino, or from households where they participate in free and reduced meals. So talent development is about scouting academic behaviors and mindsets where we provide an implementation of programming that has direct instruction in critical and creative thinking strategies. Instead of doing the traditional approach to gifted that we identify for gifted, then we serve, we've shifted it. So instead of identifying students and perpetuating the outcomes we see, we support all learners and whole group learning experiences. Then we move to our identification process and following that, we have gifted services or programming where we continue to support them. So the Mm -hmm. big thing with talent development is that we start with a strengths-based approach. We recognize the assets and tools that these learners show up to school settings with, and we provide increased opportunities to nurture the talent and potential they already have. All right. So this is great. Let's unpack this a little bit. So in U46, what grade do you guys do the identification? Is that at third grade? We have our formal identification at third grade, yes. Okay. Using at first the state test, is that? We actually do not use the state test. We do have multiple measures. We use an achievement measure and a cognitive abilities test and an inventory of learning strengths that teachers complete to give a a more comprehensive profile. Okay, gotcha. And the idea with talent development then is to say, okay, first, before third grade, we want to make sure that we're providing all students with these great learning opportunities so that we might nurture their learning. But also, it sounds like to me that you might also have teachers notice students who are responding particularly well to some of this enrichment and these opportunities so that they get identified. So in other words, because we know that some of these traditional measures tend to be biased against kids in poverty, we certainly talk all the time on this show about the importance of language, about you know Edie Hirsch's insight from long ago that a lot of kids in poverty are very smart, but they haven't had an opportunity to build up their vocabulary very much yet. And so, and that's going to show up on a reading test. So you're looking for other ways for these kids to kind of pop up. What are you having teachers and other educators looking for in terms of kids who might show up as having great promise, even if they're not necessarily knocking it out of the park on the on traditional standardized tests? That's a great question. So this scouting for potential really first starts from this understanding that talent development is a potential pathway into gifted services. So we're looking for these learners, and we call them scholars in our programming to elevate yeah. that disposition and their mindset. We're looking for this intense desire to learn and learners who have often these inventive strategies for recognizing and solving problems, as well as these learners who might have a large storehouse of information and have these really intriguing logical approaches to solution. So we Mm -hmm. take that and we call those those readiness behaviors. We begin to scout for those, the classroom teacher and the gifted trained specialist are looking for those original ideas, that productivity of thought. And even instances we're seeing a um, complexity with language might come up in a sense of humor or Mm -hmm. understanding idioms and culturally nuanced behaviors. 
So the classroom teacher and the gifted specialist are scouting for those behaviors within the context of a direct instruction thinking skills lesson that cover areas as visual thinking, evaluative, convergent, and divergent thinking. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm trying to picture this. This is all during the regular school day that you're doing this, but but this, this is a sort of a specially designed curriculum to try to get at some of these thinking styles and these approaches and, and to see kind of what what pops up, right? David, thoughts coming from you on, on all of this? You know, David has a, a very precocious two-year-old son who I'm sure is going to be ready for this soon. Yeah. Well, I think the basic concept makes sense to me, right? Which is that there's a sort of, there's a catch-22 nature to all of this that we always worry about, which is that if you're gifted, then you get gifted services and then you appear gifted, right? And so what I took away from this conversation so far was that you're trying to get ahead of that, right? And you're trying to really not just identify, you want, you're, trying to, you're trying to connect kids with rigorous instruction and with sort of higher expectations as soon as possible, even before the testing happens, right, necessarily. And then, you know, kind of trying to break that catch-22. Is that a fair way to talk about it? It is. I would add to this, David. So the goal with talent development is these are kids who we typically would not identify. So without providing them this front-loaded experience and giving them the ability to engage in this way, they may not show up in the ways that we typically see gifted identification. All right. Well, then I guess let me ask a, a more difficult question then, which is, do you winnow at any point? I mean, let's say a teacher comes back to you and says, or maybe I'm just not understanding, right? I mean, can a teacher come and say, hey, my entire class is gifted? Or, or how do you handle that? Right? <laughs> is there any Anything that, for lack of a better word, you, you would describe as quality control, or, or how do you think about how broadly gauged this this? Yeah, program? I, I think we're approaching 100% of gifted kids here in Montgomery County, Maryland, but you know. So, I mean, great question. When we look at this, gifted itself is an extension from the core. These are learners who demonstrate either through achievement or the potential to accomplish at levels that would be beyond their peers. The key point to that, though, is peers of comparable backgrounds and experiences. So when we have these situations, we are looking to say, which learners demonstrate the need for something beyond what is typically provided at our core? And we have an intervention called gifted programming to meet their needs. So this question of, are we going to find a classroom where 100% of these students are meeting on these levels? We certainly don't think that that would be the case because there's a core experience, and then you have that distribution of performances with students, and it's still about what we typically do find. One of the things yeah. that Mike did mention, part of our approach to equitable access in U46 is we recognize that part of the identification, too, is to recognize the talent at the local level. So we do use building norms, and we're identifying those students mm -hmm. from the talent base of their mm -hmm. elementary site. One last question, April, and you, you may, I, I don't know if you have the data to, to be able to track this or not. I mean, do you have a sense of whether the kids who are identified in this way, kids who maybe show up through this talent development program and through the scouting, who don't necessarily do great on the tests, do they end up doing just as well as they go through the grades and in, in the gifted programming and beyond as their peers that are knocking it out of the park on the test? So are you asking for those students who are identified and participate in programming? Yeah, that's right. Yes. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. yeah, that clarification. What we actually do find, Mike, at the local and the national level 
is by the time these learners who've received this intervention are preparing mm -hmm. to make that transition into middle school or given that developmental range, you know, within about the middle school experience, you cannot tell which learners were identified using this local context of, you know, mm -hmm. building norms or those mm -hmm. learners who would, you know, we, I'm certainly taking a great deal of caution when we think about those students who are identified through traditional methods. So yeah, we see yeah. these learners showing up in similar ways by the time they're reaching middle school. That's great. I mean, this is great. I mean, to me, this is huge, right? I mean, again, to all of these challenges we have where we worry about whether it's selective high schools or selective colleges, we know, of course, not at all being representative of the American public, start early, right? Start early, challenge everybody train teachers on uh, what to look for in terms of scouting talent. And this can be an important part of the process. Now, of course, then we got to keep kids on track, make sure that they don't fall away, that you know something doesn't pull them away from this high achieving track. But it certainly is, it is a very encouraging sign and symbol. And as you said, this is not a tiny little pilot program you're running. You're doing this in Illinois' second largest school district. Well, it's really exciting. April, we really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm excited to talk more about the working group as it comes along and, and maybe get you on here sometime again to talk more of your great work on U46 and nationally. So again, April Wells from Illinois School District U46, the gifted coordinator there. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Happy Ides of March, if that's a thing that you celebrate. That's a reason to drink green beer, right? That's been a thing for a long time. <laughs> yes, yes. But you're right. St. Patrick's Day, that, that is something certainly to celebrate. At a time when, yes. again, the, the news is so bleak, we will look for any opportunity to celebrate. All right. Well, what do you have for us this week on the education research front? We have some new survey findings out from the American School District panel. This is this RAND panel that's doing some really great research, kind of very timely stuff, collecting from districts. This particular version sheds light on the various types of staffing shortages that leaders are saying they're having in districts and the extent to which districts may be hiring new staff with their COVID relief dollars. I finally have some data that just flat out ask them, you know, how, how are you spending this, this money and are you spending on new staff? So. The survey was fielded in November and December of 2021, so just a few months ago, and the results are based on responses from 333 district leaders and 26 charter network CMO leaders, so about 359 total to be exact. I was trying to figure out how they came up with this total, but so they, they randomly sampled traditional leaders and CMO leaders to invite them to enroll in this American district panel. And of the 987 total that enrolled in their panel after they randomly sampled them, 359 participated in the survey. So if you care about all that, that's how the sample was derived. All right. Responses are weighted to make them nationally representative of districts across the country. But again, we're still talking about a third responding from their total panel. All right. Now for the key findings, all of which are statistically significant at the 5% level, you have, all right, I forgot. I'm giving you guys a little bit of a quiz. What percentage of district leaders say that the pandemic has caused a shortage of teachers? And we're not getting into, did they create new positions yet? Okay. I'm going to say 80%. Yeah. Mike? I'll say uh, 75%, even though I don't believe them. I think they're uh, wrong. <laughs> 68. So you guys are both mm -hmm. okay. kind of close. 
All right, now what percentage of district leaders and CMO leaders say that it has caused a shortage of substitute teachers? Oh, you know, can it be higher than 100%? (laughs) Sticking with 80%, Amber. All right, 95%. So you guys are headed in the right direction. More CMOs, urban districts, and high poverty districts report the existence of pandemic-induced shortages than do their traditional public, non-urban, and low-poverty counterparts. No big surprise there. Then to get a better sense of where the shortages were occurring in 21-22, leaders were then asked about 11 different teaching positions and 14 different non-teaching positions. Once again, they say the single greatest shortage is for substitute teachers, with 77% reporting that this was a, quote, considerable shortage as of fall 2021. I'm guessing, you know, we've said this before, teachers probably calling out with sickness, fewer subs wanting to come in. After substitutes, the next largest shortages were for high school teachers, special education teachers, and math teachers. The latter two are categories that have historically been hard to fill anyway, so we need to keep that in mind. Among non-teaching staff, shortages of what type of non-teaching staff top the list? Oh, oh, I know, I know, I know. Yes. What, what, what? Bus drivers. Bus drivers. David, were you going to say bus drivers? Yeah, I was going to say bus drivers. (laughs) I knew you were. 74% say it is a moderate or considerable shortage area. All right, who's after bus drivers? Hmm. Hmm. Cafeteria workers. Ah, they're coming in third, but there's somebody before those folks. I was going to go with soccer coaches, Amber. (laughs) How about teacher's aid, paraprofessionals? Mm -hmm. Uh, 60% say that they're a problem. Cafeteria workers might come in at 53% saying they're uh, considerable shortage areas. All right. The two categories that are hardly ever reported as shortage positions. Who do you think? Nobody's having shortages of these folks. Hmm. Social studies Mm -hmm. teachers. Nope. Art teachers. Central office staff. Oh, uh, yes. Not, not hard to figure out that one. And school secretaries. I don't, mm. I don't know. School secretaries mm. are, not, are hanging in there. So there we go. Not surprisingly, high poverty districts reported more shortages overall than low poverty. Next, they asked districts if you had expanded uh, your number of hires in 21-22 above your pre-pandemic levels. Mm-hmm. Figures were high overall. What percentage said they had expanded hiring one or more non-classroom positions? 85%. All right. David? I don't think it's that high. I'm going to go with 50%. Oh, well, you're not going the right direction. 88%. Uh, And this time they were talking about school counselors, social workers, those types of folks. As for teachers, what percentage say they expanded explicitly the number of teachers? 20%. I'm going to stick with 50%. All right, you're at 37% are expanding the number of teachers. 46% say the same about teacher aides. Tutors, school nurses, and substitutes, again, round out the type of staff positions that have been expanded. Uh, Most districts say these positions are hired directly as district employees rather than as contract workers. No. I know. The only contract workers they had were HVAC (laughs) and some other category. On another note, final finding here, 13% of superintendents left their positions in the last year, but apparently a 13% turnover rate is roughly on par with pre-pandemic data. So apparently that's sort of a typical figure, didn't cause them too much alarm. Yet half of superintendents report that they are either undecided or are likely to leave their position in the next few years. 
Hard to know what or if to make anything of that. Still, superintendents report working 59 hours a week prior to the pandemic, and that increased to 67 hours per week on average after the pandemic. Finally, the big implication here, I think we all know, is that districts are likely to hit what's becoming known as the big fiscal cliff after COVID-19 federal aid expires, since they are expanding school staff as district employers. Obviously, harder to get rid of these folks later. But are they accounting for the enormous surge in economic activity and productivity and tax revenues <laughs> around the corner, Amber? Come on <laughs> uh, oh, I know. Really? Why? Why? Why are they hiring these people directly? I mean, but Mike, what's better? A new football field? You know, you hear of these other sort of crazy capital, mm-hmm. you know, improvements. I mean, I, I don't know. What, we no, want them to be I, using it on tutors. I don't know. What, what, where do well, we right. want all this money I, I going? Look, I, I'm fine. Tutors, yes. Mental health people, yes. But those could be done as contractors, right? Yeah. To say, look, this is we're, we're going to hire you, you know, short term as part of recovery. And we've got a couple of years of money. And when the money's gone, you know, we're going to have to let you go. And so we're not going to create this expectation that you're going to have a permanent job by putting you on the books. You know, I wonder too whether people are taking these contracting positions though. Man, I don't know. It just seems like they'd be hard to get to. I feel like I read that somewhere, you know, yeah. where all of these contracted places are having a hard time with staffing as well. No, could anyway, be. Anyway, David, I cut you off. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think if there are positions that are hard to fill and we have a giant pile of money that we're not sure quite what to do with, that lends itself to at least one course of action for me. The other point I was going to make was, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not having buyer's remorse, but all these conversations just sort of underline for me that this is not actually how you do things, right? In other words, it's actually very hard to spend whatever it is, hundreds of billions of dollars quickly, well, mm-hmm. uh, seven of, you know, seven out of the 10 answers that we, we come up with seem to be pretty unsatisfactory, at least, you know, to current company. I'm not sure what to say about it, except it's an unfortunate truth of the situation that what do we expect, right? Like, the system is not going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars well, if we just throw it at it. And especially with this kind of timeline, right? That's the part that I think is really frustrating for me is, I guess, if I could make one change, it would be to try to get these items spent over a decade instead of two to three years or whatever it is, because what, what's the drawback to that, Mike? Of course, I, I think that way too, but um, what are yeah. we missing no, by I dragging think, it I, out? No, I think that's right. Uh, look, my understanding was, you know, we're talking about the American Rescue Plan funds that it was going to be an even shorter timeline. And then thankfully there were some changes made pretty late in the game to allow districts to have at least a little more time. I mean, it's, you know, it's not aligned with political timelines, right? But you don't randomly find 20% more uh, qualified teachers for three years and then have them disappear. That's not how it works, right? Mm -hmm. We have to build over time. And I think what's unfortunate is we feel like we've lost a lot of it here and we don't have very much time to get it back. Um, But I still think all the reports of this stuff just makes me think that the timeline is, is still a little shorter than we would want it to be if we want this money spent well. That's my main reaction. Yeah. All right. 
Yeah. Right, right. Well said. Yeah. Well said. All right. Well, hey, good stuff, Amber. Thanks. I do always like doing those those polls, especially <laughs> especially when I win, <laughs> when which is clearly win. the case yeah. this time around. <laughs> Come on, David. Oh, no, I didn't try very hard. Oh, now you said I should let him go first. I think he always lets you go first so he can, right. you know. He's got an advantage, and, he's, and he still didn't come out on top. All I'm right. not sure what happened. But. Yes. <laughs> all right. Hey, gang, that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.